1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to study it verse by verse together as a family. Lord, we're not interested in just learning information. We want to be changed by you. We want to be made more like Christ today. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to yield our hearts over to you, to have you teach us and encourage us and exhort us and correct us in ways that we could never imagine. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your Spirit and you would use these verses right now to make us more like Jesus. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I always like starting a new book, as I mentioned, and this book is very special to me um, over the years. It's one the, the verses in this book were some of the first verses I memorized as a new believer almost 24 years ago. We had this group at the church I was at that me and some friends formed, and it was called the early bird gets the word. And we get there early on Sunday, before Sunday school. We had, we had college and career Sunday school, and then we had the service. But before that, we came even earlier to start memorizing Scripture. And I learned 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John chapter 2 and all these other verses um, that still stick with me to this day. So I have a, a special place in my heart for this book. Now, the Apostle John at this point is around 85 or 90 years old. It's, it's helpful to know that because when you're older in the Lord, you have a different perspective sometimes than when you're brand new and you're in your faith. You've seen some things. Mostly you've seen your own failures and you're not as impressed with yourself, uh, hopefully, as you were when you first came to know the Lord. And hopefully there's less self-dependence. But it was quite a big deal for the Apostle John to be that old on that day. The average lifespan was around 45 or 50 so he's lived a very uh, long, good life. Paul has already been beheaded at this point. Uh, Peter has already been crucified upside down. All the original apostles are gone except uh, the apostle John. And he's going to testify what he has seen and what he has heard in this epistle. John first met the Lord Jesus 
probably when he was around 15 or 16 years old. So he's walked for decades without uh, the Lord and uh, in terms of his physical presence. And so he's an old man now. He's looking at things uh, in a very unique perspective, with a very unique perspective. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written decades before this. And, and I know this isn't the Gospel of John, but he wrote the first epistle around the same time he wrote the Gospel of John, a little bit after probably. So he's, he's writing and he's, and he's dealing with subjects from a certain perspective related to his age, but also what's happened in the church thus far uh, in, uh, in the lives of God's people. And so he's, he's really addressing in some uh, major, pretty uh, specific ways, a major heresy that was, was cropping up. And it was the, the seeds of what would later become in the second and third century, what's known as Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism was is that they believed that all physical matter is evil. And so because of that, God could never have come in human flesh because human flesh is wicked. So God would never do that. So they believe that Christ came kind of like as a phantom or as a spirit, but not he didn't come as a physical body, in a physical body, and for sure he didn't raise from the dead physically. And so that would, that would continue, and it would go into the second and third centuries in a pretty significant way. So just the beginning of that is starting to occur here, and that's why he writes a lot of what he, we're going to see him write. And so this heresy does damage. It's, it's important to remember that heresy and false teaching always does damage. It's not just, you know, you could take it or leave it, or it's just, you know, uh, you know kind of, you know, um, benign. It's not. Bad teaching causes damage. It causes hurt. It causes pain. And so these Gnostics were teaching that because because every all physical matter, including our human bodies, are evil and there's no redeeming them, then that must mean that, uh, well, they had two different expressions of how they live it, it related to this Gnosticism, those that adhered to it. They would either be super, super legalistic, and Paul touches on it in certain places as we've seen if we've gone through those books. We've seen him say, some people say, do not touch, do not, you know, observe this day versus that day, and there's all these legalistic man-made rules and real strict rules because they're saying because our flesh is evil, we have to go overboard and and try to, uh, you know, with our human effort, deal with it. But there was a whole other group that said, well, because physical matter is, and my body is, is evil, and, and, and it doesn't reflect uh, my relationship with God, then it's disconnected from my spirit. So that must mean that I can do and say and practice and think anything that I want to because it doesn't represent the real me. So they were engaged in all kinds of uh, disobedience and sin and wickedness, and they said, doesn't, doesn't affect who I really am. It, it sounds familiar. In our day and age, there's a lot of people that claim to, to believe in God, to believe in Christ, to trust in the gospel, but yet they're living in complete disobedience to God, and they say it doesn't really affect their spirituality, that God understands. God understands what my needs are and what my impulses are. He wants me happy at all costs. Of course, that's the, his number one priority in the universe, is to make sure that we're happy at all times. But that's a deception, and so he's going to deal with that, that yes, my behavior, my sin, the way that I live my life, it represents the Lord. Even though my sin, I have a sinful nature, I still am supposed to put off the old man and put on the new man and to live a different kind of life by God's grace and by God's power. And so he's going to be 
addressing that as well. Pastor Chuck, when he, he tells the story, I don't know if you've heard this uh, before, but the, Pastor Chuck, who started the Calvary Chapel movement, or God used to start the Calvary Chapel movement, when he first discovered verse-by-verse teaching, he was in Huntington Beach, and he wanted to stay there because he liked to surf. I mean, he's just honest. I just love that. I, just, I like to surf. I want to be here for a long time. And he liked the schools that his kids were in and so forth. And so he discovered this outline of the book of 1 John by Griffith Thomas. And he just basically took that outline and he started teaching verse by verse. And this is way before the Calvary Chapel movement started. He was still in another denomination. And God's people were fed and they grew because he only had two years worth of sermons and he'd run out of sermons and have to move to the next church. I'm not kidding. And, and so he started teaching through it and, and people were getting saved and, and, and they're getting built up and everything. He's like, wow. You know, if I just teach through the Bible, I could stay in Huntington Beach the rest of my life. So he started going through the Bible, and next he taught Romans, and they're just growing and growing and growing. And he realized that healthy sheep beget sheep. And, and so he started learning about teaching through the Bible. And so when he started First John, when he first started, he, he learned from, I think it was Haley's Bible Handbook, that there was four reasons that the Apostle John was, wrote First John. And, and, and he asked the congregation, okay, do your homework. And let me know during the week what those four reasons why John was writing 1 John. And they were calling him up and saying, okay, I got two of them, but I can't get any more. There's, there's only two, Pastor Chuck. He's like, no, there's more than two. There's four that he explicitly states as the reason why he's writing. And they kept trying. And, and what they were doing is they were getting in the word and they were studying and everything. And so I did that this week. Some of you know that on Facebook. Those of you who are on Facebook, I, I, let me know those four things. See, if I had it together, I would have done it last Sunday. But... You know who you're working with here. So, uh, you know, some of, and so seven or eight of you responded, and many of you nailed it, all four of them. And we're going to look at them, but you nailed all four reasons why uh, the Apostle John wrote the book. And, and uh, so it was a blessing to, to kind of go through that again, just like he did at that time. So I want to go over these reasons that he gives uh, for writing the book uh, real quickly. He says in chapter 1, verse 4, Write these things that your joy may be full. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he states that I write these things that you may not sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 26, he says that you may not be deceived. So he wants us to know the truth. He's writing for that reason. And then fourthly, chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may, your joy may be full, that you may not sin, that you may not be deceived, and that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, obviously, there's other things that he has in his heart to share, other things that the Holy Spirit inspires him to write to us. So I'm not saying those are the only four things we learn, but those are the four main things that he's focusing on related to his purpose for writing. So one other thing before we get into the verse, we will get there, by the way, to the verses, just to give you hope. Uh, there, there is a few other things I want to mention about First John. First of all, it's incredibly blunt and to the point. Now, I love that about God's word generally, but especially in First John, he doesn't beat around the bush at all. I mean, he just says it how it is. And with all the lies out there and all the, well, to me, God would never, and to me, I believe God is, and to me, God would this do this or that, and all these things that people come up with shaping their God in, in their own image instead of looking what God's revealed in his word as who he is. 
I love the fact that it just he's just blunt to the point, and he's he's not long-winded in the sense of you know going on a long you know many 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 verses to say one thing. He's just to the point and concise, and that is so needed <laughs> because one of the things that he's going to deal with here, and he's going to focus on, is that we have to protect ourselves against deception, and that's why he's so blunt. I believe by the Spirit of God. Because we, we can be so deceived. Now, he's talking to believers here. So as believers, I can be deceived. I can actually think that I'm losing weight when I'm not losing weight. I can believe that I'm exercising just because I get up and go to the fridge. That that somehow counts for exercise. We could deceive ourselves in a lot of different ways. But the worst kind of deception is spiritual deception. You may remember when they asked the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of your coming and all these things. And he says, let no one deceive you. First thing out of his mouth, let no one deceive you. And so he knows that we're susceptible to error and to false teaching and to heresy and that we have to know our Bibles. A worn out Bible is a beautiful expression of of God's faithfulness in our lives and what he's pouring into us and investing in us as we grow in our walk with him. So we need to be grounded in God's word. But he also protects us in this book against self-deception, which is the the most deadliest type of deception. And we see it by three little words he says, if we say, if we say, basically, if we profess something and we're claiming something about ourselves, but yet it doesn't line up with God's word, we're making a statement that doesn't line up with reality. No matter what our emotions say, no matter what we think, no matter what our background is, our education, those that have influenced our lives, whatever they've said to us, it all may line up against God's word. And that's why it's so important to be grounded in his word and know what his word says so that when even my own opinions and my own thoughts and my own take on things, it contradicts God's word. I need to throw it aside. There are things that we believe about God, about life, about the world, about our ministries, all these things that may not be true. And we have to have the courage to submit what we believe to God's word. I remember when I first came to Calvary Chapel and I believed a certain thing about one of the spiritual gifts that was very strongly ingrained in me. And I had experienced a certain thing related to this spiritual gift and it didn't line up with God's word as I dug deeper. And it was hard because I had been used a certain way in, the, in a spiritual gift that didn't line up with Scripture. And I had to chuck that, and it was hard. It took a lot of courage. So one of the things that we need to recognize is that self-deception is a threat to us. God's Word is a protection, but also people that He's sent into our lives so often is a protection for us to, to, to guard against self-deception. That's why we need to have an environment here, but also just a, an attitude in our own hearts that we're going to allow people to speak into our lives that are concerned. We're not going to get defensive. We're not going to get prideful. We're not going to shut them down. We're going to let them exhort us. It's hard to let someone exhort us, to stir us up and to challenge us. It's hard. We have to ask ourselves, Lord, what are you trying to teach me when people say something to us? It takes a lot of courage to say something hard to somebody else. And we're, we're on the receiving end of exhortation. It's really easy to forget that they're paying a big price, potentially, for having the courage to stand up and tell us something difficult, but that we need to hear. And just like with our children, we love them even to the point of saying something hard to them that they're not going to like because we know it's best for them. 
And that's what agape love is. It's doing what's best for the other person, even at our own expense. So self-deception is a danger. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He said, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in, his, in this age, let him become a fool that he may be become wise. So when a person thinks he knows something, we have to be careful about that in our own hearts. And recognize that we only know what we know because God's revealed it didn't originate with us. And so we need to submit to that and not be um, deceived. Now, as we begin the verses, John zeroes in on his personal experience with the Lord in verse 1. He says, verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. So he says, that which was from the beginning. Remember, he wrote the gospel of John, which begins with, in the beginning was the word. There's a lot of similarities between the gospel of John and his epistles. So he says, talking about the Lord Jesus, he's from the beginning. He's before time began. Before time started, he was there. <laughs> he was, he's, he's eternal from eternity past. And then he says, um, which we have heard. Now think about this for a moment. You know, the Apostle John was 15 or 16 when he met Christ. It had been 65 to 70 years somewhere in there of walking with the Lord uh, there. And then a little bit shorter than that, or or longer than that, um, or shorter rather, for for the last time he saw him. So it had been decades and decades and decades and decades since he actually was in Christ's physical presence. How many of you have lost a loved one? And it's been a long time since you've seen them. Raise your hand. A lot of us. I think of my mom. You know, she died when I was 17, 1986. So it's almost coming up 30 years. And when you are close to someone and you spend a long time with them, even if it's been decades and decades and decades, can't you still hear their voice? You still remember what it was like when they touched you, with that loving touch. Maybe it was your parents or a grandparent or child. You remember what they smelled like. You remember how they looked at you. They rem- you everything down to how they breathed. <laughs> you know, my kids are probably going to remember me as a heavy breather because, you know, when you're heavier, you breathe a little bit heavier, you know. <sighs> I don't know how they're going to remember me. But you just have all these things in your mind and in your heart and you just love about a person and you don't forget those things. It's so easy to think that these are, these are not just words on a page. This is a life. This is a man. That have been changed from the inside out decades ago, 60, 70, 80 years ago. Not quite 80, but a long time, decades and decades of of being changed. He was a teenager when he came to know Christ. And now it had been decades since he has seen him. And there's one thing harder related to the Lord Jesus. And it's hard for us never ever seeing him in the flesh and experiencing him with our physical faculties, which we will when we get our new bodies and we see him again. We're going to experience that. There's one thing worse than never having that. It's having it and then not having it. And the Apostle John has not had it after having it the longest out of any apostle that lived. And so he's remembering back. And he has an aim for it. I know he has a purpose in it. But he's, he's, he was ripped away. The Lord Jesus was ripped away from the Apostle John. He's the only one that followed him all the way to the cross. And many speculate that that's why he lived, the Lord allowed him to live such a long life. You know, he didn't die a martyr's death. They tried to burn him in oil, but it didn't, it didn't kill him. 
That's what we're told in tradition, but we, you know, that's what they say. But he died of old age in Ephesus, after Patmos, after he wrote down the Revelation. He died in Ephesus there as an as a elderly, elderly man. So, so John still remembers when he says, we have heard. He still remembers the sound of Jesus' voice. He remembers what it sounded like when he said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. He remembers what it sounded like when he gave that amazing Sermon on the Mount. He remembers the sound, the inflection, his cadence, everything. He remembers all of it. He remembers when he yelled into Lazarus' tomb, Lazarus, come forth. He remembers how loud that was. He remembers the tone of voice. He remembers how he spoke to the Pharisees. He remembers how he rebuked the waves. And they they were all like, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? He remembers how that voice sounded. Amazing. Then he says, seen with our eyes. He he remembers what Jesus looked like. They didn't mention what Jesus looked like on purpose. Didn't want us fixating on any of those things. Isaiah tells us that there was nothing about his physical appearance that was desirable. But there was no specificity at all in the New Testament related to what he looked like. But he says, we saw him. He knew his eye color. He knew his hair color. He knew this, the, the pigment of his skin. He knew, uh, you know, if he was hairy or not. Or, you know, he knew how tall he was. He knew how much he weighed. He knew all those things. And not the, like the number, how much he weighed. Like, you know, Lord Jesus, stand on a scale for me. I mean, he knew generally, you know, what his, what his weight was there. He, he had seen him. But then he says with something interesting that you may think would be redundant, but it's not. It says, we have looked upon it means, literally means to gaze upon. You ever stare at someone and you're trying to be covert about it and, you know, you're in school and there's that girl or that boy and you're trying to get a good long look, you know, and you think that you're at an angle where they can't really see and, they, and then you catch the corner of their eye and they, they look at you real quick and, uh, and you, you know, my, my, my friend and I, a couple of my friends and I, we, we'd be at stoplights and we would sense someone staring. I don't know why in Modesto people just stare at each other at stoplights. It's a, it's a very well-known thing. Staring at us, you know, and we would time it right. We'd kind of wave our heads, you know, and then we'd go, you know. And they would go, you know, like going convulsions, you know, like freaking out because we would do that because the whole car would go look at them, you know. But there's something about looking at someone and, you know, can you imagine the disciples with the Lord Jesus there, how many times they were staring at him, just looking at him. And, and, and wanting to, like, what is this guy about? Where is he? Who is he? Why did he say what he said just now? And you're just staring at him. It's like, did he really just do that? Did he really just multiply the loaves and the fishes like that? Who is this man? So he says, we have gazed upon him. And then he says, our hands have handled. Wow. As, I mean, he couldn't add anything else. In this, he could have said our noses have smelled, I guess. He could have added that. But he says, our hands have handled. You know, John's the one that we're told in John chapter 13 that he laid back on Jesus' chest. You know, in those days, you wouldn't sit down with chairs around a table. You know, that famous painting of the Last Supper is completely false. They would recline. And I like that better. These tables are pretty short, and they would kind of recline on their arm, and they would all be they had the pillows and all that around the table and so forth. And so it would be very easy for the Apostle John to be lying next to Jesus and just let rest his head back on his chest. And I want to read you the account in John chapter 13, verses 21 through 25, where 
John, the apostle, tells us, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter, therefore, motioned him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. And Peter wouldn't ask himself. It's like motioning to John, you ask him. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? It's amazing. And I'm confident that the Apostle John said, the one whom Jesus loved. And I first read that as a new believer. I'm like, man, this guy's a little prideful. Like, I'm the one that Jesus loved. Neener, 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 you know. And, and it wasn't like that at all. The Apostle John was just confident in Jesus' love. He knew that Jesus didn't love him any more than the rest of the disciples, but he knew it, and he enjoyed it, and he wanted to talk about Jesus' love for us. But think of that intimacy. You can't get any more intimate. I mean, the Apostle John, he lowers his head on his chest, and he's, he's sensing Jesus' breathing up and down. He can smell him. He can, he, he's intimate, and the Lord Jesus loved that. He loved to be intimate. You think he doesn't like that? He's like, who are you? You know, like, I don't want you leaning on my... No, he loved that. And, and there was that closeness there. And he says, we handled him. We've handled him. And he calls him the word of life. Again, in John chapter 1, the word was with God. The word was, the word was God. And he, it's communication. It's talking about communication. God's representation. Because later in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, and the word became flesh. This whole theme of manifestation of God in this world is very popular with John's writings. And later we're going to see him say anyone that doesn't believe that that Jesus came in the flesh is the spirit of Antichrist. So he's, he's going to get even more blunt with it. But he's saying with all of this, he's saying, don't believe the Gnostics. Jesus did come in human flesh. We handled him. We, we experienced him. We gazed upon him. We stared at him. We heard his words. All of those things. He's real. And then he says in verse 2, The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declared to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So that word manifested is important. Again, he's talking to people that believe that God never manifested himself in physical flesh. And he's, he's fighting against that. This life, this word of life, was manifested. He really did come in the flesh. And we have seen him bear witness. That's a legal term, bear witness. It's like as if he's on the witness stand. And he's saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I bear witness to the fact that I have seen the Lord Jesus. He was God manifested in the flesh. And I testify to you, and that's what he says, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He's calling the Lord Jesus eternal life. That's when he says the life was manifested. John wrote in John chapter 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, one of his designations is he's eternal life. That's who he is. We, just, we go to him for eternal life, but we, he is eternal life. It's all wrapped up in who he is. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, so more physical uh, experiences there, was, um, and, and what we heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he says, we declare what we have seen and heard to you, 
that the purpose of it is that you would have fellowship with us. Now, fellowship is a word that's kind of hard to define. It's having something in common. It's the word koinonia in Greek. And the word koine means common. So it's saying we have something in common, a spiritual in commonness. And, and I, it's hard to explain how fellowship works among believers. It's not just talking about anything. It's talking about the themes of, of, of the Lord. It's talking about spiritual things. When one believer's with another believer, and they're both talking about spiritual things and loving one another through those spiritual themes, then they're building each other up spiritually. There's something that actually happens in their spirit that builds them up. And that's one of the ways in which we grow as believers. And so he says, we declare this to you, he was manifested, so that you will have fellowship with us. Because if you don't believe that, you can't have fellowship with us. You can't have fellowship with unbelievers. They're spiritually dead. You're spiritually alive. There's no spiritual building up on there. They have no capacity to build you up, and their spirit's dead, so you can't affect their spirit. So that's, he says, you have to have, you have to believe what we've declared to you in order to have fellowship with us. And then he defines their fellowship. Our fellowship is truly with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. A lot of people that claim to have fellowship with the Father, but they don't want anything to do with the Son. And the Lord Jesus said, if you don't honor him, you can't honor the Father who sent him. So you can't, you can't have it any way that you want. You have to go through Christ. He's the door. He's the way there. So he says fellowship is really important. Now he gets to the first reason why he's writing in verse 4. He says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The Apostle John knew by the Spirit there was no joy in Gnosticism, no joy in living a compartmentalized life where I get to just do whatever I want with my body and it doesn't represent who I am as a Christian and then supposedly become, you know, a Christian, I mean, I grow as a Christian spiritually with my things that are going on in my body is, is not pleasing to God. There's no joy in that. There's no joy in believing that God didn't come in, you know, in the flesh. And so God the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to write, I write these things so that your joy may be full. It's very important to God that we walk in his joy. He wants his children to be full of joy. And the question is, what is it? (laughs) Well, joy has been defined as calm delight. It's different than happiness. Happiness is circumstance-based. It's up and down, depending on my circumstances. But joy, our joy is based on our relationship with him and the things he's accomplished and the things that he's promised and the things that he says is true about me, which circumstances can't change. So that's why Paul can be with Silas in that Philippian jail at, you know, at midnight and they're worshiping the Lord, singing songs while their arms are in stocks and their, le- their legs are in stocks and they're worshiping the Lord. And they can have complete Joy. Read the book of Philippians. The whole theme of it is joy. While he's in prison, he is having, experiencing incredible joy based on his, his relationship with him, which Rome could never change. So maybe you're here today and you don't sense God's joy. Focus on your relationship with him. Focus on all the things that are true about your relationship with him that he says are true about you. And, and that joy will spring up because you are forgiven. You are a child of God. Your future is secure. We've read the end of the book. He wins. 
<laughs> you have purpose. You have a calling. You have, a, you have a, something to do related to serving. You have people in your life that he's sent. He has, he's given you his word. He's given you a song to sing to him. He's given you many ways to express worship. There's so many things that he's blessed us with. Read the first chapter of Ephesians. The longest run-on sentence in the world. All about our inheritance in Christ. The first three chapters in Ephesians. All about our inheritance in Christ. All those things circumstances can't change. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Chapter 16, verse 22. Therefore you know I, I, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. John 16, 24. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. John 17, verse 13. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Very important that you have his joy. It's our strength to have his joy. Verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So he's saying, we... We communicate to you what we first heard from the Lord Jesus. That's what he says. This is the message which we have heard from Jesus and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus is the light of the world. And he shines bright in this dark world. And the darker this world gets, the brighter he shines. He also says that we're the light of the world because his light flows through our lives into this world. And sometimes we think, well, I don't want to be in a dark place. That's the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And I'm talking about just where there's ungodliness around. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. And maybe someone might question the Lord in terms of his judgment. Why you're placing me in this ungodly environment? Because you're light. You shine brightly. And people need to see a difference, a contrast in this world. Based on how they're living and based on how God intends them to live. So he says... We heard it from him. We declare it to you. He's light and in him there is no darkness. There's no sin in him. He doesn't lie. He cannot lie. There's no deception in him. He's pure. 100% pure. Now he gets to the first deception in verse 6. Notice the first three words. If we say, so if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, that's what the Gnostics were doing. They were saying, we have fellowship with him. But see, their lives weren't living up to that because they were living however their flesh wanted to express itself related to sin. And God says, no, that's, that's not true. You lie and do not practice the truth if, we, if you say that you have fellowship with him but yet walk in darkness. Because he is so pure and he's light, there's no way that he will have fellowship with darkness because he, he can't. He's pure. He's, he's, he's pure light there. So he says, you can't have fellowship with him and you do not practice the truth. Because people say, I practice the truth. I'm, I'm, I believe in the Lord. I'm being used by him. I'm, I believe in him and so forth. But yet they live complete, in complete disobedience to God. And he says for us to know, including for ourselves, of course, if that person is engaging in that, they are not practicing the truth. It cuts through all the ambiguity, all the lies out there. He just says that's a fact and we need to know that. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all 
sin. If we don't walk in the light, we can't have fellowship with one another. Have you tried to have fellowship with someone that's in willful disobedience to God? There's a close friend to our family that we had for a long time. They totally loved the Lord. And they were bearing fruit and all of this. And then they went in total, complete disobedience to the Lord. And we tried and tried and tried to help them and to reach out to them and so forth. And we would be around them and we just could not talk to each other. I mean, just really, that, that sin, that willful disobedience was right in the way in between us and them. It was just so, so hindering. And, and so that's what he's saying here. If we walk in the light, because he is light, so if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We can't have fellowship if we're walking in willful disobedience. Fellowship with other believers is a privilege. And so any time that we, we get to, and I say that word on purpose, get to have fellowship with other believers, we need to see that as a privilege. And if we're in willful disobedience and we will not repent, then that we can't have that fellowship. And we won't allow that fellowship or attempt a fellowship here. If the person will not repent, we will not allow that, even people even to try to do that. And of course, that's an extreme situation. It hasn't even happened yet here in our almost six years of being here. But my point is, is that you have to walk in the light to have fellowship with one another. And then he says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The word cleanses is in, the, in a tense that communicates continuous action. He's continuously cleansing us from all sin. So that the, the effect of his blood continues to work in our lives. And because and, and, if it weren't for his shed blood, there's no way we could have fellowship with him, nor could we be cleansed from our uh, daily sin. It's easy to forget that the standard is still perfection. We fall short of that as believers every single day. We fall short of, of per, uh, per, uh, perfection. Now, in the second deception is in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's talking about denying our sinful nature. If we deny that we have a sinful nature, if we deny that we are sinners in general, then we deceive ourselves. And there's plenty of people out there that are deceived, thinking that they're okay. That man is basically good. He's flawed here and there, but they're not at their nature sinners. And, and God comes in right here without any worry about his poll numbers, <laughs> his approval rating, and he comes in and just says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We can claim all day long that we know the Lord. We can claim all day long we had an experience with God. If we are denying that we have a sin nature, then we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now for the Christian bar of soap in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our all unrighteousness. Now, the word confess means to say the same thing as someone else says. So when you confess something, let's say you get brought in, you're arrested, and you're, you've committed a crime, and you confess. What you're saying is, not only did you do that, but you're saying that you're in agreement with the fact that it, it's against the law, that you're a lawbreaker. And that's the same thing that he's saying here. When we confess our sins, we're saying to God that, they are, that our behavior is sinful. We're agreeing with him that it's, we've fallen short of perfection and, we, and we've sinned and offended him 
and, and sinned against him. That's what confession is. And he says if we do that, he is faithful, and I love that because I need him to be faithful, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, these tenses are all present, present uh, continuous action verbs here. He'll continuously forgive us, continuously cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word cleanse means to get out impurities out of our life. It's the word they, they got the word um, cauterize or, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about, the medical stuff that you put in you to get toxins out, you know, catheters, and you cauterize something by burning the impurities away and so forth. That It means to just be, you know, experientially clean. Because our standing before God is perfect holiness, righteous before him. When he sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But in terms of our fellowship, remember, that's the whole topic here. Our having that relationship with him, there's something in, in between that us and him in that way. Like when you sin against somebody else, until that's worked out and confessed and dealt with and forgiveness occurs, there's something in between you and them in terms of your relationship, your experiential relationship. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about heaven and hell. He's not talking about any of those things. He's talking about our experiential fellowship with God. That when we say the same thing he says about our sin, ask for forgiveness, we repent and so forth, he cleanses us and that fellowship is where it needs to be once again. One of the first verses any Christian should memorize. Then he closes with the last deception in verse 10. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So anytime we say that we haven't sinned or we're in denial of our sin, then we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We're not recognizing what he said, you know, that we are fallen and that we are uh, needing a savior. And so he says that's a deception and we have to guard against that. These Gnostics said it didn't matter what they did with their bodies. It, It doesn't represent their relationship with the Lord. And he says, yes, it does. It makes a huge difference. Uh, in your relationship with the Lord. So as I close here, I just want to focus a little bit on fellowship. The idea of fellowship, the idea of being able to be honest with each other, because if we're walking in the light, then we'll be honest with our, our true condition. It's really easy to gloss over our failures and to hide our failures from other believers. That's not fellowship. That's hiding something. That's, that's not being open and honest. And we have to be open and honest if we're going to be f- engaged in fellowship with one another. We have to be honest with our shortcomings and our failures and things that we struggle with and, and, and admit those things and be humble. But when we try to hide them, then we're not walking in honesty. We're not walking in the light in that way. And God wants us to do that because we need each other. But also, if we don't acknowledge that and we're not honest with God then our fellowship with him is going to be hindered. He doesn't want either one of those things. So he doesn't want us to be hindered. He doesn't want our fellowship to be broken with one another. He doesn't want our our fellowship to be broken with him in the sense of that that intimacy that he wants for us. And so it's a good exhortation for us through these verses. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to say that we're okay when we're not okay. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with God. Let's be honest with one another our true condition of how we're doing so we can get help. See, when we don't admit that we need help, then it's harder for us to recover. And then there's that downward spiral, and then the enemy likes to get us isolated away from the rest of the body, and then we're worse off, and it's just a downward spiral from there. That's not what God wants. He has something so much better for us. 
Let's walk in the light because he is in the light. And let's bring him glory with our lives. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this first chapter in 1 John. Thank you so much that it is so to the point what we need. Lord, I pray you protect all of us from self-deception and from uh, deception in general. I pray, Lord, that we would hunger for truth and we would hunger for you to enjoy our relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would walk in, in obedience to you, Lord, and walk in the light so that we can enjoy our fellowship with each other and with you, Lord. We just love the fact that you made room for our failures by putting verse 9 in there, knowing that we need to be cleansed, knowing that we need to confess those things to you. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that needs to do that, they would do that today and confess those things and repent so that you can cleanse them. Thank you for the privilege of holiness, Lord. We thank you that holiness is its own reward, and we know it blesses your heart. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.